and welcome to the Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. If you're a football fan, the agonising, endless, eternal wait from the end of the season, it's been a whole three weeks. How have we lived? Well, it all ends this weekend with the start of the 2020 European Championships postponed for a year because of the pandemic. And central to the experience, as he has been for the past four European Championships, is our guest Clive Tilsley, key ITV commentator and a man whose warmth, knowledge and controlled football mania has made sense of 22 Champions League finals and 11 FA Cup finals in a 56-year career. He's also keen on politics and an acerbic critic of Brexit. He appeared on our companion podcast On the House in 2019, and Alastair Campbell couldn't get a word in edgeways, so imagine that. He's just published his first book, Not For Me, Clive, Stories from the Voice of Football, and he's breaking off from his Euro 2020 prep to talk to us about the book, life inside the game, and perhaps where football might be going. Here he is, Clive and Direct, Clive Tilsley. Hello, Clive. How are you? I'm just looking up a Cerbic. Is that okay? Just one second. Uh, yes. Checking, you're allowed to, checking you're allowed whether to. I'm going to sue you. And No, I'm not going to sue you. No, <laughs> no, I am indeed, as you say, a Cerbic. How are you and where are you right now? I'm at home uh, in mm-hmm. uh, acres and acres of rolling uh, woodland and farmland that, uh, uh, that I call Berkshire, my, uh, which I own. Um, yeah, somewhere near Reading. <laughs> the book is is highly entertaining. You quote Barry Davis in one part saying, one man's commentator is another man's pain in the arse. And uh, you're not sparing of certain other commentators, mostly unnamed, who, who tend to indulge themselves or complain about their lot. How does one go about keeping on the right side of that fine line between commentator and pain in the arse in such a long career? Well, that's up to the public, of course, as <laughs> with most things. <laughs> we are all a matter of opinion. And, uh, and that's what the point that Barry was making the only mm. time I ever heard him say arse in his, uh, all of my dealings with him, working with him at the BBC and knowing him as a friend. But it, it, it's true. Uh, I, and, of course, it's true of most presenters or weather forecasters, <laughs> newsreaders. Uh, you know, if, if you're in an industry, as we are, where you can't produce more cars than the guy on the next assembly line, then your output is measured only really you know, partly by audience figures, but and and in the twenty first century by likes and dislikes. But it is really just a, a question of, of of what the majority of the public make of you. And one of the great things about these European Championship finals, and I'm not knocking pay per view uh, television at all, because you know the likes of Sky and BT Sport do a, a marvelous job. But this is free to air. It's on BBC and ITV. And the difference that that makes to the viewing figures is immense. I mean, I don't know how aware you are of a super-duper-duper Sunday on Sky mm. with, I don't know, you know, Liverpool versus Manchester United, whatever, might touch a two-and-a-half million peak. My second game is Germany versus uh, France on a, a Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock. I would expect the audience to be 10 million or more for that. Uh, when England play Scotland the following Friday evening on ITV, you know, you'll probably be talking 17, 18 million. And that's the difference. It It is the tournament which touches the parts that others can't. The book, like I say, is a, is, is a rollicking read. And un- unlike a lot of football books, which can be a little bit over-diplomatic and sometimes... You know, football or autobiographies can be a little bit boring. There is actually a loads of dish in here and loads of incidents. And it's not actually an autobiography, is it? It's, you, it's snapshots of the people you've encountered in football. Brian Clough, Ferguson, Kelly Douglas, Ron Atkinson. What really came across to me was the insane pressure and will to win amongst these people, even for people who, like me who, who like football. You know, do we fully understand the absolute intensity of these 
these very abnormal people? Well, we can't understand because they're not like us, and that's why they are extraordinary. And from time to time, we, we, we kind of judge them from our perspective, and we maybe feel that Pep Guardiola is a bit rude or that Jurgen Klopp's a bit one-eyed or what. Of course they are. Of course mm. they are. They're at the top of a profession, which, as I say, is probably the greatest meritocracy in the world. Every Just about everybody wants to be a footballer. Only the most talented can. You you can buy a football club, but you can't buy your way into a football team. You know, the only requirement for being a successful footballer or football manager is that you're good enough. And so in order to push themselves above and beyond all of the other people who aspire to doing their jobs, these people have got to be different. And yet the book isn't an autobiography. My my life, or the bits I want to talk about anyway, are not interesting enough to, <laughs> to to be worthy of an autobiography. It is mildly autobiographical in parts, but more than anything, more than, and I hope it's lots of other things too, but more than anything, it is what I've learned, not just about football or sport, but about life itself from being privileged enough to get close to some of these extraordinary people who become the chapter headings in the book, Cluffy, Fergie, Shanks, yes, Gareth. There's a chapter called Gareth. Yeah, and, and what I picked up about all manner of things just from being around them. One of the standouts for me was uh, when you're quite early in your career and you're spending a lot of time very close to Brian Clough, capable of being extremely intimidating. And there's an astonishing incident where you're on the uh, on the train, <laughs> you're joining Nottingham Forest on the train, and Cluffy comes up with, young man, young man, when you travel with Nottingham Forest, you travel with a tie. And he basically bullies you into running into the train station to try and find a time to jump back on the train. It's not really a football story. It's more of the psychology of a very strange man. Yeah, I mean, I think with football managers then and yeah, possibly to a slightly lesser extent today, I mean, we are talking about my career started in 1975 and Brian Clough was the first manager that I worked closely with. Well, 1975 is a long time ago just in terms of the number of years, but in terms of the culture of football and indeed life itself, you know, they were very, very different times. And you could be non-negotiable, I think, when you were Brian Clough. I think, I hope that the Fergie chapter charts not only the importance of power and maintaining power to a man or or indeed a woman at at the head of an organisation with the profile and, and the scrutiny uh, of Manchester United, but actually his ability to change his management mm. style during the course of, of that long tenure at Old Trafford because everything else changed. So we parented differently in 1986 from when he took over than we did by the time we got into the 21st century when he stepped down. Now, whether, and I kind of pose the question, whether Cluffy could have adapted, it's not telling tales out of school. He was a man who had problem with, with alcohol. He, you know, by his yeah. own admission, it was the only contest he couldn't win. And that affected his, his management. Now, whether his raw talent, his eye for a player, his charismatic presence, his tactical acumen would have been as applicable in 2021 on the terms that he insisted on conducting professional relationships is an interesting question. I suspect the fact that Fergie had to change during the course of his time at Manchester United suggests that probably you couldn't sustain that that attitude to management. Now, we hear a lot about mental health in the modern era, and, and I think um, 
you know, football or any kind of competitive collective is a very interesting insight into mental health, which covers mm. a multitude of issues. I think pastoral care in the 21st century dressing room has to be better, as indeed it has in the workplace, in the office, you know, in, in Parliament itself. You know, these, yeah. these places have, have got to change. You were commentating on Radio City in Liverpool in, in the 80s. I was listening to you in my metaphorical short trousers. And <laughs> you write in the book, if you want to open your mouth for a living, there is no harder school than Merseyside and no better place to learn. Do you think that that hard school to learn the arts of commentary still exists? You know, to remember that it's journalism, it's not like goofing about between bantasauruses on the radio. Well, I think there's a lot more commentary out there um, th- than there was when I began in the business when you were in those short trousers. <laughs> And I think, actually, you you would probably be aware then of who you were listening to, particularly on television, because there were only five or six television commentators, really, that anybody was aware of. That was all that was needed for the number of games that were being broadcast. Now there's five or six hundred of us. Yeah. And games are on all the time. I do get occasionally, very occasionally, but I'll, I, I've been known to get abuse on Twitter for a commentary on a game that I'm not at. I'm sat at home with a glass of wine watching it too. And it's because there is just so much content, the art of commentary, if there is such a thing, has evolved in a lots and lots of different ways. And so, yeah, I mean, it is all to taste. To go back to Barry Davis, Barry Davis's remarks that you opened with, we are a matter of taste. And I make the point in the book about listening to a little uh, session of of the test match on, you know, the famous, revered test match special one Saturday morning when I was driving to a game and Joffre was bowling his heart out trying to save the ashes and I was hanging on every ball and every appeal as it was made and um, Jonathan Agnew and Phil Tufnell were discussing craft fairs in Leicestershire. Now, there is definitely a place for that, even in, in my version of TMS, but it wasn't then. It wasn't yeah. that morning when every ball mattered to you know our ability to try to to hopefully draw that test match and stay in the series. And I think those editorial values that I was given by my mentor and by my early bosses maybe aren't as prevalent today. Is that a bad thing? Well, again, that's a matter of opinion. As I say in the book, that segment that morning would probably have been some listeners' idea of the best radio they heard all year. To me, I was struggling to keep the car on the road because <laughs> it was making me so angry. Let's talk about the Euros a bit. Um, major tournaments can often be torture for England. You were ITV's commentator in 2016 when Iceland humiliated us. The most abject failure that I can recall, I think you said. At what point did you realise this was a five-star disaster and, and what's going through your mind when you've kind of got the nation's emotional well-being in your hands? Well, I tell the story in the book of commentating on the game and how difficult it was, not least because particularly the manager of England, Roy Hodgson, was a personal friend. And when I say personal friend, you know, we've been out for decision and I and my wife have been out for dinner with Roy and Sheila, you know, that, and not only a personal friend, and by the way, you'd love his company. He is a really... Uh, erudite, fascinating. There yeah. isn't a, I mean, there are so many people in football who wear blinkers. Roy's got like 20-20 vision. He sees so much, reads so much, and knows so much. And you can actually have one of those dinner nights without even talking about football. So a really 
not only a, a good friend, but a valued friend, a man for whom I have an awful lot of respect, a man who'd been very, very helpful to me in terms of trusting me with information in the build-up to these big games that I was uh, commentating on. Here he was approaching the end of the line because it, it was clear that if England lost that match, he would have to resign. I actually had uh, a voice in my ear, but the editor's voice in my ear during commentaries. And my editor, knowing the relationship, actually pointed out to me with a couple of minutes to go in England, trailing by two goals to one, that I was going to have to call it. And I've got mm. a secret button that I can go back to him on and, and basically said, yeah, I'm well aware of that, but there are still two minutes to play. And... Um, I don't know, but let's take a recent example of a game. Let's take the Europa League final. Let's say that David De Gea scores his penalty and the Villarreal goalkeeper misses his. Mm. Our entire judgment of that night, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, everything to do with Manchester United, just becomes different. That's how fickle we are when it comes to football. Yeah. It's all about W or L. Probably the most important game of my career was settled by two goals in the 91st and 92nd minutes, you know, the Champions League final in 1999. So you've got to wait as a commentator. You can't call the horse across the line before it gets there. Um, but at the same time, you've got to be thinking about uh, the journalistic assessment of what you're seeing here. And so it is difficult, and it's difficult, particularly difficult to call it when you know and like... Not only Roy, but Gary Neville was part of that team, Ray Lewington, part of that team. Again, good friends who were going to be declared failures if, if England didn't equalise. And England didn't equalise. Roy had pretty much resigned before, before I'd announced it on the TV uh, that he had to. I mean, he knew yeah. you know, he was gone. I mean, it's Roy himself who said to me that we, we analyse football from the final whistle back to the first whistle. It's played the other way. And we were, I mean, any kind of knowledge after the event is is a wonderful thing to to use in any in any walk of life. But as we're living life, we don't have that knowledge, and and I think we should be a little bit more appreciative of that from time to time in our analysis of all things. So football is basically tennis, right? Okay, I'll remember that <laughs> going backwards. But you just talk about maintaining that kind of objectivity and having to be journalistic about it. But we, you know, we do watch football to be taken out of ourselves and to be taken beyond rationality. I mean, I remember the two thousand and five Champions League final. It was like an out of body experience for me. I, I, I was almost levitating watching Liverpool come back from that. You finished and you're over to the greatest comeback in in history. You are a football lover. Do you ever find yourself like on the edge of losing it? On the edge? On the edge of kind of being being carried away with the other tens of thousands of people in the stadium? Well, communication is always all about just that. It's, it's, it's about knowing your audience and somehow connecting with them. And, and that's the state that you and, and hopefully most of the audience are in. Otherwise, I wouldn't be needed. You know, football is a wonderful piece of theatre. I mean, I think in the opening couple of paragraphs of the book that's kind of what I write mm. football changes everything it changes who we are as you say you are a totally different person during the course of a big Liverpool game than you are in the rest of your life and thank goodness for that I mean <laughs> with, with the benefit of genuine hindsight and I know this because the same two teams met in the, the final two years later and I watched mm. the 2005 final back this is Liverpool versus Milan for those who are not aware of it, Milan 3-0 up at half-time. Liverpool scored three times in less than seven minutes in the second half, squared it, 
game went to penalties and Liverpool won it. That was about the only good seven minutes Liverpool had in the game, you know. They played much better against Milan two years later and lost the match and had a better team on the field in 2007 than they had probably in 2005. But that is what sport does. You can't read it. You can't second guess it. So much of the theatre we watch, that there is an inevitability about how it's all going to end. Uh, so mm. much of the drama that we watch on TV... I mean, it's very rarely that you see a cop drama where the bad guy gets away with it, so you kind of know what's coming. Football, the bad guy gets away with it quite a lot, strangely, and um, and, and indeed all sports. And I've sort of grown up watching these great sort of national events, Wimbledon and the Grand National, the Open Championship, or the Grand Prix and so on. And, you know, Wimbledon's defined in, in my life by those epic struggles between... McEnroe and Borg, for the final match of the men's singles to be the best match of the entire fortnight. I mean, that doesn't always happen, obviously, in football. Some finals are very, very disappointing. But when it, when something happens, you know, like that, that Liverpool final, like the Manchester United final six years earlier, where the, the drama is just so beyond any prediction or belief, it does live with you forever. And you remember who you watched it with, you know, where you were, who you were dating, what, you were, what music you were listening to, it becomes a little kind of um, touchstone in your entire life and something that you will tell your children about and maybe your grandchildren about. And that is that is how football resonates with us. That's how, And I, I often say if, if a political party could harness what we see, okay, it's not necessarily Saturday afternoon, but every weekend... The hundreds of thousands of people who go to watch a team play and their attachment to that team, how it affects their entire <laughs> life for, the, for the, the days that follow, just the gathering of people with such a, a, an intensity of interest and concentration. Wow, that, you know, that political party could take over Europe, never mind the UK. Well, without wanting to overdo it, political parties have tried to harness that kind of thing, and and it's 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 not rational. And one of them nearly did take over Europe. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and it kind of borders on that from time to time. But I think the manager of your club has captured it completely um, with his comment of about six nine months ago. You know, the most important of the unimportant things, and as long as we yeah. keep it there. Uh, and and he, he does have wonderful insight in that sense. He, he, he kind of, he, he not only gets Liverpool, I think he gets football. I think it's why, even with the tribal divisions that we have in our sport, Jurgen Klopp's pretty popular. Yeah. I think even with the most hardened Manchester United, Everton, you know, who else likes Liverpool, whatever. So, some people kind of just get it. And that is the position of football. And I think anybody, particularly in the last year, that has tried to, to, to blow football trumpet any louder than that. And, you know, we've seen it really with our friend Perez trying to start up a European Super League. I mean, this year of all years, Florentino, do us a favour. You know, there are bigger things around than whether Real Madrid are going to be able to afford to sign Erling Haaland or not. Really, come on. You know, where, 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 where is your perspective gone? It's fine to lose your perspective for 90 minutes during a football match, but... Football's got to find a new perspective. It's got to sort its economy out. It can't go on like this forever um, because, you know, good clubs, my hometown club, Bury, uh, you know, they're going to go out of business. And, and, and the effect of that on a community and on the people who are committed to that football club, 
you know, goes a lot deeper than you would imagine if you don't understand football. Just before we go then, uh, going back to the Euros, I mean, this is going to be a really strange tournament. It's not just that fans have been cooped up, stadiums have been empty and that kind of thing. In England, in Britain, we've seen a really ugly rise in racism. You've seen players being booed for taking the knee. Racist abuse of black players on social media and elsewhere has increased. This is the first big tournament since Brexit and since the culture wars were declared. In the bad old days in the 70s and 80s, national football was a magnet for racism. Are we in danger of going back to that? And particularly if politicians continue to kind of stoke this narrative of the culture war. Well, I'll give you a really straight answer to that and a really personal answer. I think it's a really good answer for 2021. And that answer is, I don't know. Mm. I think it's quite a healthy position to be in that. I have been on the planet longer than you. And while I've never been happier in my life, this has in many ways been the most uncertain year that I've ever spent on the planet. And yet I feel as if I'm surrounded by people who are absolutely certain about lots of things. And not only certain, but judgmental with their certainty that you're either with us or you're against us. And you're not allowed to ask questions. Uh, You're not allowed to say, I I don't know at the moment, but I am interested. I'm interested in your cause and your creed and and this issue and, and what it is. I'm just trying to work it out. And I would like a more open, easier conversation so that we can all work this out together There is a chapter in the book called Big Ron, which is not really about Big Ron. It's about the fallout from something that he said in earshot of a microphone in 2004, which, you know, many of your listeners will be aware of. And it's my exploration of my observations on racism and particularly how it's affected football. It doesn't come to any great conclusion, except that when I hear how racism is very much a part of the national conversation now, I think that conversation needs to be more open. I think if you believe in a cause, and I believe quite passionately in equality at all levels, and I actually think that, in my opinion, you know, the biggest source of inequality in this country is economic rather than anything to do with race or gender or any kind of behaviour that affects education in a big way. If you, if, you, if you start life in a relatively poor environment, you're less likely to get a good education, you're less likely to get opportunities and so on. And, that, and I do think we need to address bigger pictures other than concentrating on the specifics. But rest assured, all of that goodwill to all men that we experienced in the first a few weeks of the first lockdown It's not necessarily typical of human behaviour, I'm afraid. And, you know, once we get the the licence to revert to type, you know, we do do utilise, we do abuse circumstances that work for us. I'm not a socialist as such, but I think that we need to recognise certainly what we're doing to the planet and what we're doing to each other in in the meantime. I read a tweet today, uh, which is a quote from the great Mr Attenborough, talking uh, about the behaviour of different kinds of ants if they're put in a jar together and how peaceable they are, the different kinds of ants with each other, unless somebody shakes the jar. And then they all instinctively turn on each other because they assume that the other ants that they're sharing this area with are responsible for this you know, terrible invasion on their lives. And so the question is asked by Attenborough, you know, men v. women, black v. white, whatever, whatever, it should be not 
what's our differences, but who's shaking the jar that is exacerbating these uh, these differences? And very often it's us, I'm afraid. It's the media, or, or we certainly promote the shaking of the jar. And I think we we need to be the starting point. This is the business that you and I work in, Andrew. We've got to take more responsibility for the way that we communicate. And I feel very strongly about this, particularly in news coverage. And we've got to start with that. It's not enough just to report it. We have got to ask the kind of questions you just asked me. And it is okay to say, I don't know to begin with, but you've got to carry on asking that question until we start to become a little bit more certain. Because I say in the Big Ron chapter, this shouldn't be a difficult argument to win. Of course, Mm. black and white people should have equal opportunity. Of course they should. Of course we should treat each other equally. So this actually should not be a very difficult argument to win against anybody who is uncertain about that or actually objects to it. But we've got to listen to them because I feel if we've learned anything from Mr. Cummings, not recently with his his appearance um, before the Select Committee, but the way that he managed to win Brexit and win the election, it was that he recognised the disenfranchised, he recognised those who felt they weren't being heard, and he listened to them. And he indulged them to a certain degree, because if you just try to walk past those people with your cause, with your banner, if you march on Parliament and you leave these people behind, they'll get you one day. They'll just vote you out. And you talk about the booing of the taking of the knee. The people that we're not asking in this conversation are the people that are booing. I mean, maybe they haven't really got a reason. Maybe they just don't. Like this, you know, maybe last time they were in the football ground, this didn't happen. So I don't want it to happen. Maybe it's as as empty as that. Or maybe it's, you know, something strong and heartfelt. But whatever it is, we've got to listen to them. We've got to try to turn them. We've got to try to convince them. And that's the only way that we go forward. And there's a lot of that argument running through my book in all areas. You know, I go back to a comment that lovely Graham Taylor made to him, the late Graham Taylor, uh, when he was England manager which was, I understand other people's opinions of who should be in the England team, and I respect them. But believe me, however much thought and time you've given to your opinion, I've given 10 times more. I'm the England (laughs) manager. I think about it every waking hour. So I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. Don't make out that I haven't thought about this because I really have given it a lot more thought than you have, and I've come to this opinion. We've got to give more thought to some of the opinions that we hold. Clive Tilsley, thank you for talking to me. I think you can call your next book, Don't Shake the Jar. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't steal cool from Attenborough. I'm sorry. That is, I mean, that, <laughs> that is stealing from royalty. <laughs> I think it's called sampling these days. You're yeah, allowed to yeah, do it. Yeah, it's okay, yeah. <laughs> Clive, thanks for talking to us. You've got Germany and France for your second game. What's your first game? It is now Ukraine versus, not Holland, they are now the Netherlands. And we'll be watching it carefully and closely. <laughs> Clive, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Listeners, remember, there's new shows from The Bunker every Monday to Thursday and on Saturday. We leave Fridays free for our companion podcast, Oh God, What Now? If you like what you're listening to and enjoy it, you can back us on Patreon. You just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get the podcast early. You'll get them without adverts, all sorts of good stuff. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. He's one of our own. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Sofronievich. Nordia production and Halftime Oranges were by me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. 
The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 